The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Janine. This is Get the Funk Out. Very special show this morning. We're kicking it off with Barbara Bradley Haggerty. She's an award-winning journalist who spent nearly 20 years as a correspondent for NPR. She covered law and religion, and she's the author of the New York Times bestselling uh, book, Fingerprints of God, and she's received the Templeton Cambridge Journalism Fellowship in Science and Religion and a Knight Fellowship at Yale Law School. And before joining NPR, she was a reporter at the Christian Science Monitor. She lives with her husband in Washington, D.C., and I just got a copy of her brand-new book, Life Reimagined, the Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. It's my pleasure to welcome this week's show, Barbara Bradley Haggerty. Good morning. Good morning. I am really enjoying your book, and when I heard about you, I believe I was listening to KPCC, and when I heard about you and your book, and I thought... This is so fascinating, and it corresponded to my show because as we talked, you know, a lot of times you go through these moments in life, these funks, and they can turn out to be the best thing possibly that ever happened to you. Yes, and and that's actually exactly what happened to me. Um, It was this whole book about, you know, midlife, and is there such a thing as a midlife crisis, and what can you do about these funks? That all was sparked by... um, by my mother having a stroke, actually. Um, my mom, it was 19, it was, let's see, it was uh, 2011, and my mom was, oh, 89, and I was 51, and uh, she's really my best, really my best friend. She's oh. a wonderful confidant. She's articulate and insightful and all those wonderful things. And one day she had a stroke, and we weren't sure she would ever come out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, she'd ever get conscious again. Uh, we weren't sure that she would ever speak again. And this was just a tragedy for me because I so looked to my mom as a source of wisdom. And the idea that she'd never speak again was something else. And I remember it was a beautiful, beautiful May day just before Memorial Day. Mm -hmm. And the... You know, the flowers were blooming, and it was gorgeous, my favorite time of year, summer just about to be here, and I felt nothing, Janine, I felt nothing, just completely flat, and and I looked over at my husband, we were cooking dinner, and he was slicing tomatoes, and I looked over at him, and I said, you know, I I think I'm having a midlife crisis, (laughs) and he looked at me, and he said... Don't do that. Please don't have a midlife crisis. No. <laughs> and so, you know, and so it's one of those things that, that you talk about um, a choice. Right. And, of course, you know, some choices are harder and some people have easier time making choices. I think a lot of it has to do with brain chemistry. But yes. I'm a relatively optimistic person. And so basically the next day I got up and said, okay, let's see what the research says. Am I going through a midlife crisis? How mm-hmm. do I avoid one? What do you do to thrive? And amazing. that was really the beginning of everything. You know, it's amazing because you, you do make a choice, and what a choice you made. You ended up researching what was going on with you. Well, yes, and, and I think sometimes if you... I, I, in part, I did it for, for Devin, um, for my husband, because I, I knew that he didn't want to be around someone who was moping around having a midlife crisis and going through all sorts of angst. Um, right. And so, so I did it partly for him. I, I ended up doing it partly for me, too, and there was something else going on in my life that, that was very difficult. Um, my brother has this, too. I got a partially paralyzed vocal cord, oh, um, which is really hard for, for a radio correspondent because yes. I'd lose my voice for days or weeks at a time. 
But um, what happened is I, I got this in 2009, but didn't know it. But then in 2012, the um, the pain started. And um, anyone who has chronic pain knows that, that when you have this, it's it's... It dominates your life. Sure. I mean, all you can think of is, how do I run away from my own body? Right. But I got chronic pain in my vocal cords. And the stress of being on air or the stress of always having a d- potential deadline, some yes. catastrophe happening, that made my, my pain just soar. Oh, and so no. one of the things that happened was not only did I consider, you know, not want to have a midlife crisis, mm-hmm. but then there was a certain urgency that I had to change the way I was living my life. And um, and that was forced on me by my vocal cords, <laughs> oddly enough. And so sure. th- this was all part. So this was also another little trigger, a little crisis mm-hmm. that I had. That a lot of people have. They have a health scare, and they go, "Okay, I need to reevaluate my life." Yes. And that happened to me as well. And th- any idea? I mean, how long did this last? Did, did it well, go it's away? you know, it's it's amazing. I mean, my my poor brother has had has dealt with it for. 20 years. Mm. I didn't get it till 2009, and I didn't get the pain to, till 2012. Um, what I found is that, um, I mean, medication helps, but I don't like medication. Right. My brother, my brother does, but I don't. I don't either. And because it makes me feel really stupid, um, <laughs> like I'm walking through water, right? right. And like, uh. so what I started to do is I used actually the principles of neuroplasticity, um, and. Uh, I had remembered um, an interview I'd done several years earlier with a UCLA um, neuroscientist named Jeffrey Schwartz, and he basically helped people with OCD. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll be very brief with this, but it was it, it saved my life basically. What he would do is people with OCD he have a brain wiring issue. They they don't need to wash their hands again, but their brain is telling them they do, and it kind of gets into what he calls the worry circuit. And what he does is he shows people an fMRI of their brain and says, look, you don't need to wash your hands again, but this is a faulty circuit in your brain. And next time you feel like you need to wash your hands, I want you to say, this is not based in reality. This is a brain wiring issue. Well, what happened to me is that after about three years, my, my vocal cord actually, with a lot of exercises, got better. Um, in fact, it wa- it's not very paralyzed, but there's a faulty mechanism in my brain telling me that I'm in pain okay. and that my, my vocal cord is, it is firing all the time faster than it should, even when I'm at rest. So what I did is I used those principles and I said, you know what, this is not, my vocal cord is not actually paralyzed anymore. That's a, but there's a faulty that? wiring issue going on in my brain where it's sending me signals that the vocal cord is in distress and it's painful. And so what I started doing is saying, I'm not going to accept that. And I would use, I'd kind of say, false alarm. This is not based in reality. This is a brain wiring issue. Mm -hmm. And then I would do some exercises um, with my vocal cords, and then I would do something to distract me, which scientists have shown really helps with pain. Distraction is really good for pain. I've gone from... 24 pills a day. And what I, they weren't pain pills. They were like to relax my throat and stuff. Sure. To three. Oh, great. Three. Yeah. And so basically I've used the principles of neuroplasticity to handle this crisis. Mm-hmm. Would you say, so it sounds like a lot of it was an emotional reaction or an emotional yes yeah. you're you're spot on yeah um re- pain researchers say that a lot of pain is not the actual acute pain you know you 
hit your thumb with a hammer, and yeah, it hurts. Yeah. It's the emotional content. So if you think you're getting a um, a migraine headache, mm-hmm. you're going to be very emotional about that. Oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to function for two days. Oh my gosh, you know, and it's that emotional layering that if you can strip that off, right. you're going to strip away a lot of the pain. You know, it's interesting. I grew up as a child having eczema, and I know a lot of my eczema was triggered by emotion, mm. divorced parents. So if somebody upset me, I would immediately start scratching my arm. Oh. Right? Yeah. So it's the same thing for adults. We have to stop and realize we don't have to reach for those pills or that drink or That's right. Ben and Jerry's or whatever it is. That's right. <laughs> it's something, you know, something triggers you. Try to breathe or step away or it's, That's it's right. hard. You know, you have to be in tune. You do. You it, it takes a lot of discipline, um, and you know what didn't come easy at first. Um, but but I mean, medita- That's why meditation is shown to help so much. Oh yes. Because it actually is a discipline of the mind that actually calms and centers you and focuses on the present. There's actually a lot of I don't didn't think we're going to talk about pain a whole lot today, but here we are. Okay. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of really interesting research showing that um, meditation. Um, people who meditate actually see their pain differently, mm-hmm. and it goes. It, it essentially, it's a really good thing for chronic pain yes. um, uh, and emotionally laden pain. There's some really interesting research about this. You know, it's interesting. I shared with you too. Um, I I told you I lost my dad, so I go for yes. these long walks and. I'm very affected by music. I love music, grew up with music my entire life. So I'll listen to music, and all of a sudden, you know, a song come on. If it starts bringing me down where I'm, you know, I feel like I'm going to just start bawling, I switch to something, you know, obviously rock, whatever, and then my whole mood is completely uplift. My stride increases. And so I just, that's my own meditation, my own form of therapy and dealing with my own funk. You know, I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah. And you know you know what I do, um, which I think a lot of people do as well, um, because I'm not particularly musical, um, I'm a little bit athletic, and okay. so I've started cycling. And so Great. cycling for me is the break. It, essentially, it resets my system every single day. And I either spin or cycle, depending on the weather. And I uh, cycling... Actually, any kind of exercise, any kind of hobby is actually really, really good, not only for your body, but for your brain. It actually makes you um, preserve, like, brain cells, um, new brain cells in your hippocampus. And it actually extends your life, and it helps, it saves, you know, staves off depression, that kind of thing. So exercise and hobbies like musical instruments or learning something new like a language, those are those are just amazing remedies for both physical and emotional funk. Yes. I want to touch on something in your book. Uh, You talk about unconventional advice at Harvard. Ah. I love this. You mean about the Harvard study, the longitudinal Harvard study? Uh, Howard Stevenson. Oh, Howard Stevenson. Sorry, I talked to a lot of Harvard people. That's okay. (laughs) Yes. Howard Stevenson, what a what an amazing person. He um, he's a professor emeritus at uh, at Harvard Business School, and uh, he also was on the board of NPR. So I kind of knew him that way. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him when I was doing my my um, research on mid career shifts and how that is very very common. He said a couple of wonderful things to me. One thing he said was that there's a difference between twenty years of experience and one year of experience twenty times. And what what he meant by that, I mean, I can relate to this because it takes about a year to learn how to get a 
three-and-a-half-minute piece on Morning Edition if you work for NPR. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you know, you're, you're, it's really challenging initially, and then it gets easier and easier. Mm-hmm. Um, after five years, you can do it in your sleep, right? So yes. the whole thing is how do you turn, make sure that you're growing every single year in those 20 years of experience rather than just repeating yourself or like my husband's a professor. He doesn't do this, but Howard talked about it. You know, a professor who gets his, his uh, notes for the first year and teaches his classes and then uses the same notes over and over and over again. They get bored. Yes, of course. Yeah, you, and you have to mix it up. And his view is what you need to do is to lean, and another person talked about this too, you lean into fear and not boredom. Yes, and I really love that advice um, because it is really scary to make a change. I mean, I made a change from da- the daily news business to trying to do longer form, you know, magazine articles and books and things like that. Mm-hmm. It is really scary. Yes. But one thing, I'm not as bored, right? Interesting, sure. <laughs> so, so the people who really think about these things really say that midlife is a very good time uh, to really rethink your career and think, how, what, given that most of us can't retire at 65 mm-hmm. or 60 like our parents did, we may not have the kind of pensions and all of that, given that most of us are going to have to be doing something probably until 70 or so, if you're 50, yes. you have to say, what can I do that will really engage me for the next 20, 15, 20 20 years. Mm-hmm. Okay, what, not how can I hang on, you know, I'm bored, but I can hang on. You don't want to hang on for 20 years. I agree. You want to be engaged. Right. I remember being in my uh, 20s, 30s, in a cubicle thinking, this is not for yes. me. <laughs> yeah. No way. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, what you did early on, good for you, what you did early on is you um, you looked at who you are, and this, this is something that... Um, uh, Psychiatrist, psychologist named Carlos Stranger in Israel talks about you look at who you are, what are your strengths and your weaknesses, what do you love doing, what, don't, what do you hate doing, right. and you say, okay, how can I pivot in my career to take advantage of what I'm really good at and what I really love Yes, and leave behind some of the stuff I absolutely loathe and I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at. Right. right. So a friend of mine, for example, at NPR was um, pretty senior in management he didn't want to be in management. He liked being near the reporters. He's the best editor in the building. Um, he likes thinking up stories and occasionally putting his own on. He took a step down so that he could do what he really, really loved to do. Rather than staying up in management and climbing up the ladder, right. he looked at himself and said, you know, I don't like that other stuff. I would rather be, have a lesser, lesser you know, Thank title. You. Yes. And and do what I really love. Yes, and then you're, you're so much happier, and it shows. Oh my gosh! Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's. I mean, his demeanor has completely changed. He's one of my good friends, and I've watched him go through this transition where he's just, you know, f- he's flourishing now. That's great. You know, a lot of times too, we try things that we were too fearful when we were younger. We're, you yes, know, it's like something we've always wanted to do that we. I mean, I I uh, minored in TV, radio, and film at Syracuse, but I was huh. I was too shy to really pursue it professionally. Yeah, and you know that's really that's so true. And I think maybe what what happens, um, I think maybe a couple things happen. One is you, when you get a little older, you realize that making a mistake isn't the end of the world. Not at right? all. Right. And so yeah, so what? Like 
So what if, if um, you know, I was on this program the other day at Wisconsin Public Radio, and mm-hmm. they couldn't connect to me. I could hear them, and they couldn't hear me. And, like, I'm hearing this poor host tap dance for 10 minutes. Aww. Like, you know, and soon we're coming on with, and, <laughs> and she clearly, <laughs> I'm not sure she'd read the book because she didn't have a lot, <laughs> a lot to say. Um, but she, maybe she read the book. Anyway, okay. she knows, having been a host for all that time, yes. that, you know, that's no big deal. No. It's not the end of the world. Yeah, mm-hmm. you fail. So what? You pick yourself up and you do it again, and and you pursue your dreams. Yes. So I think I think that's a really good lesson that maybe you only get with a few years and a few bumps and bruises. You right. know. Right. You know, I tell people here at the station when I first started out years ago, uh, I, w- I started out subbing somebody's show, and they said, no problem, you come in, you put the CD on, and their whole show's there, and you hit play, and no problem. I come in here, and it was blank. <laughs> 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 sure, no problem. I had no idea what to do. <laughs> but you made it, right? I made it, yes. Yes, yeah. No, I know. There, there have been times like that, and you just, you know, you just draw on your resources and do the best you can, and you know, even I think people are understanding if they hear if they hear someone like who's brand new at this, yes. they're going to be a little bit understanding about it. But right. but yeah, it's not the end of the world. No, no, and you know, I think the most important thing in anything you do is be genuine mm. and be real because people like that. And if, if you can, you just you're relatable. You know, we're all human. Well, that's true, and you know, it's interesting because um, I did a series for NPR. There are four stories in two two ways, which are the host interviewing me, and I had tape and things like that. But in all the stories, I put myself in them. So, you know, with the brain, the brain chapter on midlife brain, Mm -hmm. I actually went, um, and I recorded myself doing this, got all these cognitive tests done at the University of Maryland, and then practiced a brain training game for 20 days, and then went back and took tests again to see if I had improved my working memory and my fluid intelligence. And essentially, you know, you hear me just in agony doing these brain (laughs) training tests. They're horrible. But, you know, here's the thing, and you hear me, you know, when I'm actually at the, I mean, it was interesting because initially when I took the test that first day, you could hear me going, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. I can't even get, you know, the second question out of 20. (laughs) And the last day you hear me go, gosh, you know what? Either I'm really messing up here or this is a lot easier. And what had happened is I actually made vast improvements in kind of my working memory during that time. Well, what the response I got and to all of these pieces that I put myself into is people said, you know what? These are these are real fears of mine that I am like my exactly. brain is going to mush, and mo- usually the way it's reported out is, you know, you have your reporter who talks about the scientific study about you know Alzheimer's or brain training or whatever, and it's also dispassionate. And he said, you and several people said, you know, you're you're actually in this, you're in the boat with me. You've got these same fears that I have, right. and I think people really really relate to that. They do. They do. You know, I'm going to tell you, uh, sort of an unrelated story. I was in graduate school, and I was had to take statistics. I was telling this to my daughter, and I was saying it was so hard, and sometimes you take things, and, and you don't know the right answer, but you try. Yeah. And, and the teacher would say, so what's the answer to this bell curve? And most people would yell out the right answer, you know, eight. eight. <laughs> and there was me yelling out 14, and I would be laughing because I'm trying, but it was totally wrong. And then he'd, he'd look at me, and he's laughing, and I'm like, I'll be seeing you after class. I totally don't get this. <laughs> so, you know, it's okay to be wrong, and but to try, you know? 
Yeah, and I have to tell you, I took stats too. I was an econ major and the least talented econ major in like See? in my entire class um, uh, at college. Statistics almost undid me, so yes. I really relate to that. Right. <laughs> to that. You know, I'd rather tell a good story than exactly. try to figure out the bell curve. You know, one thing I didn't ask you is what led up to your career at NPR and becoming a writer? Oh, I was very, very fortunate. Um, I was... Um, I was at Williams College, and I got a, um, for, after my senior year, I got a, an internship at the Christian Science Monitor for the summer. Mm-hmm. And in, that, in those two months, I absolutely fell in love with journalism. I had not really been a journalist. I was a fairly, you know, I, I liked to write, but I hadn't been a journalist. I hadn't written for the school newspaper or anything like that. And I fell in love with journalism, and at the end of the summer, they offered me a job. Unfortunately, I had already accepted another job at a consulting firm. And so I felt obligated to stay to do that for a year, and I cried myself to sleep every night. But happily for me, you know, because I was miserable. Here I was, like, dealing with statistics and bell curves, right? Right, right. And... um, and then they, the monitor was good enough to keep the job open. And so the minute my year was up, I was back at the monitor, and that was really the beginning of it. And just love journalism because it's such, a, it's such a weird little profession if you think about it. I mean, we call people up and we ask them questions that are often uncomfortable questions, right. and they tell us stuff. Like, yes. whoever thought of this? <laughs> you I know, know? I know. And then we put and then we put our own spin on it, and we and we write up a story. Or yes. you know, it's it's such a wonderful profession, um, and it was it's such a wonderful profession for a curious person like me, yes. and um, and also an introvert because right. I wasn't the one who was speaking. I could ask the questions. So mm-hmm. it was um, it was just wonderful. I was there for eleven years, and then. Um, took a fellowship uh, at, at law school um, for one year, and then came to NPR. That's fantastic. It's interesting how all these experiences lead you to become a better journalist. Yeah, you know, um, I think one of the great things about, um, about radio journalism is you have to create pictures in people's heads, mm-hmm. because obviously they're not seeing them. And so you do that with sound, you do that with intonation, you do that with sound bites, you do all of that. And I found that radio reporting really helped me frame stories and anecdotes for my book and tell a good story for my book. And I realized that that what people like, um, like if you read a fiction book, uh, most of it, a lot of it is, is dialogue. And so what I decided to do in writing my first book and then this one was I was essentially going to write it like fiction and have as much dialogue in there as possible, as many stories as possible. And so all of my experience with, with radio and print, but a particular ra- particularly radio, helped me, I think, frame and write my, my print, I mean, my book, both mm-hmm. books, of the one I wrote you know, a few years ago called Fingerprints of God, which is about the signs of spirituality, and then this one, Life Reimagined. So interesting. So fascinating. Uh, by the way, where can people find out more information about you? Do you have a website? I do. I do. And it's uh, Barbara Bradley Haggerty, and that's H-A-G-E-R-T-Y, only one G, BarbaraBradleyHaggerty.com. And so I've got a, a website there, and I've got a drawing of my dog and me, Sandra Aww. Day. She's a... <laughs> A 13-year-old yellow lab. Um, yeah, and so there you can get information about the books or the stories I've done. You can. I'm about to put up the NPR series that I did. So, oh, good. Yeah. I have a question because the theme of the show is Get the Funk Out, and your book deals with this 
So instead of going out and buying that Harley and someone's going through a funk, what advice would you give somebody, you know, it's going through a tough time? Well, one thing I would tell them is that um, the resilience research is very clear that if you, if you wait at patiently and just put one foot in front of the other, almost everyone recovers from a trauma right. back to their happiness set point. Mm-hmm. So it seems dark now, and, but most people recover to where they were before. So that's just straight kind of the straight research. I mean, the other thing that I would suggest is, uh, especially people who feel like they're kind of tired and they're weary of, of work and all of that, one thing I found in doing all these interviews is that autopilot is death, yes. meaning that you really need to engage in those things that you care about with real verve. So don't take your marriage for granted or your kids for granted or your job or your health for granted. If you care about those things, then really engage with those things, and and you will find that you are a lot, lot, lot happier. The people who are happy were the ones who were really engaged in their life. doesn't mean you have to be engaged with everything. Right. Pick those three things that you really want to be engaged with and do it. Yes. And I think also learning how to say, I'm spending too much energy on this. I need someone else to do that. You know, yeah. I, I need to focus my energy in the right place. That's right. You can't do everything, right? right? And that's part of the burden of middle life is you're trying to, you're trying to you know, get kids through school and into college and maybe have aging parents and you have a mortgage and, mm-hmm. and heavy responsibilities at work. So you need to pick your battles. Um, and, but what, people, what the research shows is that the, as people age, they begin to care about two things and two things almost exclusively. They care about other people, mm-hmm. close relationships, and they care about causes that are larger than themselves. They tend not to care as much. You get less and less interested in success, in having a big house, mm-hmm. in having multiple cars. You get less and less interested in that, and you get more interested in things that really last. And meaningful things. Meaningful things, meaningful absolutely. Things. Yeah. You should always choose meaning over happiness. Yes. You know, the long-term investment into in people and the next generation causes you should invest in that more than short-term happiness and you'll get both i love it barbara thank you so much for calling in i really love chatting with you i'm delighted thank you so much janine take care bye-bye Bye-bye. That was Barbara Bradley Haggerty joining us. She's an award-winning journalist. She worked for NPR for almost 20 years. She's a New York Times best-selling author, and I'm right in the middle of her book, Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. And if you missed any part of today's show, we'll be up on my blog a little later on, which is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. We're going to take a short break, and then on the second half, this is going to be really fun, actresses Julie Lake, that name sounds familiar, she's from Orange is the New Black, and Sharon Jaffe will be joining me at 9.30 to talk about their latest Kickstarter project, Mental. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.